One of the things that Wallenberg did was he rented a number of buildings around Budapest, hung the Swedish flag there, basically said these are now part of the Swedish legation and they are off limits to the Nazis and to the Hungarian Arrow Cross. My mother would tell us there was a light that shone in the darkness. And so from a young age, both my sister and myself, we knew the stories of danger and of terror, but that someone had come to help. Today I sit down with Katrina Lantos-Sweat, president of the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice and co-chair of the recently concluded International Religious Freedom Summit. We discuss her fight for human rights and religious freedom and the legacy of her late father, Congressman Tom Lantos, a survivor of the Holocaust. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Katrina Lantos-Sweat, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So we're here on the tail end of the third International Religious Freedom Summit, or IRF Summit. I've heard it described as perhaps the largest gathering of its sort in the world. And, you know, as one of the co-chairs, why don't you tell me what you think was really accomplished here? For a number of years, many of us who have been active in the international religious freedom space have felt that we needed to somehow bring all the disparate elements of this movement together so that we could find strength in numbers, build momentum, educate, network, strengthen coalitions. And it really was the brainchild of Ambassador Sam Brownback. He served as our ambassador at large for religious freedom. And he organized the first Earth Ministerials, which was sort of a government-driven um, gathering of uh, ministers. And when his term ended as our Earth Ambassador, he realized and, and really caught vision of this, this idea of creating a civil society-driven event. Because so much of the change on the ground, especially around international religious freedom, really does have to come from these, these disparate communities that somehow need to be brought together so they can strengthen one another and really build a movement. So um, I, I think we've accomplished a lot. Again, in Ambassador Brownback's words, kind of birthed the movement, brought it into existence. It's a, been a bit of a toddler, but now it's on its feet and moving forward. And we're very excited about that. I really want to talk about the realities in China a little bit. This is something that you've been vocal on for years. And in fact, uh, your father, um, may he rest in peace, Congressman Tom Lantos, was also incredibly vocal about it. A few things struck me. One, we had uh, Congressman McCall speaking at the summit, and he basically confirmed the reality of this murder for organs regime run by the Chinese Communist Party. And that's something that I don't typically see discussed at this level. I was so um, struck by Chairman McCall, because he's now chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, that he, from the summit plenary stage, directly address the issue of forced organ harvesting. You know, it's been described as a crime almost too terrible to be true. And as we know, the primary targets of this unspeakable crime against humanity have been largely Falun Gong practitioners. Um, although there's evidence, and, and your paper has been one of those to bring it forward, that they are also beginning to target Uyghur Muslims for this indescribably evil practice. But yes, we would view it as a 
as very much intersecting with the denial of freedom of religion because the, uh, the forces in communist China that are driving this grisly, gruesome, awful industry, if you will, target religious minorities like the Falun Gong, like the Uyghur Muslims, for two reasons. First, to terrorize the minorities and as another vicious means of you know, murder and persecution, but also because, ironically, they, especially with the Falun Gong, they tend to live very healthy lifestyles. And because this is an industrial scale harvesting of organs for, um, for you know, commercial purposes, basically, they are very interested in getting organs from those whose lifestyle is such that you know they're likely to be healthy inside and out. And it's, it is, as I say, an unimaginable crime. I was very grateful to Chairman McCall for raising it from the plenary stage. It has not been talked about enough. Um, it's a cause I've been engaged in for quite some time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very alarmed and kind of sickened at the way some of our top medical institutions, medical schools, have been willing to accept China's denial um, of responsibility for this and their false assurances that the practice has stopped. Um, you know, there are just some clearly absurd statistics that make it quite clear that they are not telling the truth about this. You know, I, I know China has talked about establishing now a volunteer um, organ donor registry. Uh, we've had that for many, many years in the United States. And I believe, if my numbers are correct, we have about 140 million voluntary organ donors in the United States. Those are folks who on their driver's license say, yes, you know, if I'm in an accident, I want my organs to be used um, to assist somebody else medically. Well, with a huge number of voluntary organ donors in this country, we have enormous waiting lists. Many people pass away because organs don't become available in a timely fashion. That's just the nature of this and one of those um, aspects of life that we have to contend with. China, by comparison, a country of over a billion people, has about one million. So a tiny fraction of the number that we have here in the United States on their so-called voluntary organ donor list. And yet, somehow, in China, organs can be almost ordered up within a couple of weeks. The numbers simply don't add up. And so I'm very disappointed in medical institutions and others who, with an inexcusable level of naivete, seem to be accepting some of China's claims about having you know, reformed their practices. They have not. They have not. And the best evidence is that there are still tens of thousands of organs being illegally harvested in China annually. My hope is that as we raise the profile of this crime, as the world becomes increasingly less intimidated by China's sort of size and wealth and starts telling the truth and calling China out, it will increase the pressure on that government. It's dictatorships like China that are terrified of acknowledging 
their own flaws and shortcomings. And that, that's why they have to attack um, dissidents, human rights advocates, um, groups like the Falun Gong um, that, that sort of teach principles of compassion and justice and kindness and forgiveness. All of these are a threat to a brutal dictatorship. And my hope would be that as you have more prominent and quite frankly powerful individuals like the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee drawing attention to this issue, perhaps hearings will follow in the United States Congress. These shine a light and shining a light is a kind of disinfectant. It begins to bring the, the light of truth, the light of day, um, the light of exposure to practices. And, and we have to hope that, uh, that it will lead to change, change on the ground in China. You know, when I'm thinking about hearings, I, I can't help but think about your father who chaired, I, I don't know how many hearings uh, specifically focused on human rights issues. And he was unapologetic in holding people to account. And he, of course, was a Holocaust survivor, as was actually, as many of our viewers know, my father-in-law. And so here's something I've actually wanted to ask you for some time. My wife had this moment in her life where she really fully grasped what it was that her father had experienced. And at this moment, this really kind of, this changed her and gave her more motivation in her life. Did you have such a moment? Do you remember such a moment? Um, well, I, I remember a number of moments um, in, in our childhood, my sisters in my childhood. Um, we, my father did not talk about his experiences during that dark time. I think that's not uncommon. Those were painful, painful times and difficult things to remember. Um, but when we were still quite young, my parents, both of us, both of them, began telling us about sort of a light that shone in the darkness. And that was the Swedish humanitarian, Raoul Wallenberg. So my parents' lives were in different ways saved by Wallenberg. My father had escaped from a slave labor camp. He was able to make his way back to Budapest and he found refuge in one of the safe houses that Raoul Wallenberg had set up in Budapest. Um, he, he was sent to Hungary after the occupation by the Germans with really just one mission and that was to try and rescue and save as many of the innocent Jews as possible. So one of the things that Wallenberg did was he rented a number of buildings around Budapest, apartment buildings and others, hung the Swedish flag there, basically said these are now part of the Swedish legation and they are off limits to, um, to the Nazis and to the Hungarian arrow, cro arrow cross. Now, when we say safe houses, you have to do it a little bit in quotes because whenever the quotas were not being met for deportations, um, they would sometimes raid these safe houses and march the residents off to the train stations and deport them. Whenever news of that reached Wallenberg's ears, he would race to that place and personally confront the German commander and say, these people are under my protection, this is part of the Swedish legation, you're violating diplomatic um, laws and immunities, and many times he was able to save those people. But it was very touch and go. Um, my mother, she was saved 
because Wallenberg was able to engage other members of the diplomatic corps to follow his example in issuing, they were sometimes called Schutzpasses, protective passports. Um, these were documents that basically said that the individual carrying it, either that they were a citizen of a country that they were not a citizen of, or they were under the protection of that country and had been given permission to emigrate. My mother and her mother were able to escape with a Portuguese protective passport. And that was sort of following the example of Wallenberg. So we were very fortunate because even though they had experienced terrible things, they also said to us, there was a light that shone in the darkness. My mother would tell us, we called Wallenberg our Moses from the North, who had come to save us and lead us to the promised land. And so from a young age, both my sister and myself, we knew the stories of, of danger and of terror, but that someone had come to help. And that's so important. You know, when any community feels themselves and in fact are sort of thrown to the wolves, what a difference it makes when they are not alone, when they know that there are others who are ready to stand with them. And I hope for you know, communities that have been victims of forced organ harvesting in China, that world word will reach them, that the powerful chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee spoke up on the stage of the International Religious Freedom Summit and called out this practice. I hope that it gives them some encouragement and some hope that they aren't alone. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're just reminding me uh, that I've heard sort of both sides of the equation. I've heard many instances of people who have escaped from labor camps in China say, one, when they heard of these kinds of messages, it was incredibly encouraging and gave them hope. At the same time, I've heard stories of people being shown video of basically American diplomats or uh, congressional members being complicit with communist China, and that was used as a means of demoralizing people, like actively by the regime. So it kind of it works from both sides. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, that's why you know during the Second World War, they had um, the you know the propaganda of you know these beautiful women who would broadcast to the American soldiers saying, hey, you know your country or, or to the prisoners of war has forgotten you and nobody knows about it, you know, that can be incredibly demoralizing. So you're right, it goes in both directions. But I also remember Natan Sharansky, who was a famous refusenik prisoner in the old Soviet Union. And um, he talks about how whenever a congressman or a senator or somebody prominent in the West would raise his case and mention his name and it would get press coverage. He knew immediately because somehow the very next day he had a little bit better food or they might bring him a pillow in his prison cell. So that kind of attention, that's why it's so important, especially as it relates to prisoners of conscience, that we talk about them by name and talk about their cases and sort of lift them up in the media because it's followed by the bad guys who are imprisoning them. And so you're right, that's, that's something we all need to keep in mind. Was there a particular moment when you knew that you wanted to be this type of person, basically? <laughs> and frankly, I, I have to say, it wasn't just your father that was standing up publicly for the rights of people. I, I vividly remember um, your mother 
um, speaking at a Falun Gong event, uh, you know, years ago, yeah. you know, maybe. She was a power in her own right and Absolutely. still is. She lives with me. She's now 91 and I can tell you she's still a, a warrior for human rights. But um, yeah, I, I mean, growing up with that kind of mother and father, it has always felt like a very, a very natural choice for me to want to be engaged in the human rights um, world and in the human rights fight. And uh, when my husband, um, former Congressman Dick Sweat, became ambassador to Denmark, um, I decided to pursue a PhD. And I, I chose to do my PhD on human rights and American foreign policy. So that's when I really began to delve in, not just as an activist, but also as an academic into the history of um, how the Congress has engaged on human rights. And so sort of the activist side of my brain and the academic side of my brain came together. Uh, then a, a number of years ago, I was given the very great privilege of serving on the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. I served two terms as the chair. I was also the vice chair. And there too, just my commitment to this cause um, deepened. And so it's, um, I guess it's been kind of a natural progression. I don't know that there was one aha moment when the light went on, but it has felt like a, a mission and a calling for a long time. As I was preparing for this interview, I was uh, looking through some, I guess say older material and something, and I found some quotes from your father. I wanted to mention one because I thought it was incredibly prescient uh, to this day. Rather than face the bitter truth, China has placed severe restrictions on the internet and enlisted America's high-tech companies as their internet police. And this is, you know, we're talking like probably 15 years ago. This oh, is, more, he's saying more. a little more, longer, yeah. He saw it coming. You are so right. Prescient is the right word. And it just pains me at many levels that he didn't live longer to lead the charge because we need people in the Congress leading the charge fearlessly against China's, um, China's uh, use of the, uh, of the Great Firewall of China as a kind of digital prison to keep the Chinese people locked behind this, you know, this digital iron curtain that doesn't permit them to freely and safely access the truth simply to do what you or I can do from our phone, from our computer, if we go to the local Starbucks, anywhere we want, we can find out for ourselves. We can read for ourselves information, pro and con, right and left. But in China, um, we know they have the world's most effective surveillance regime and the world's most chilling internet censorship regime. And it's very, very troubling. I think many of us in the human rights movement feel that internet freedom is a key component of expanding the boundaries of freedom around the world. China gets that too. They fear internet freedom. And we see them exporting sort of their, their tactics and their technology and their kind of MO um, to other dictatorial regimes. And you're so right, I mean, my dad was very, very prescient in that regard. And he was also prescient in, in understanding that too often um, high-tech companies, big businesses, are all too willing to collaborate 
and bend the knee and cooperate with China, um, all in the pursuit of, of um, you know, money. And he said once in a hearing, and it was pretty controversial, he had, I think, it was the um, chairman and founder of, of um, Yahoo in front of him. And Yahoo had agreed to give information to China about the identity of, an, of a dissident who had used their platforms. And he was arrested and thrown in prison. And it was such a shameful collaboration by a major US uh, you know, tech corporation. And my father said words to the effect that technologically and economically, you may be giants, but morally, you are pygmies. And they weren't used to hearing that kind of, that kind of language from members of Congress. And I was so proud of him for calling them out so unsparingly. Um, but we don't have enough, we don't have enough folks doing that, in my humble opinion. And we need more um, because our our big corporations, they wield a lot of power, a lot of power, both economic power and also sort of social power. And um, they, need, they need to be held to account. I'll just mention one more thing, and that is um, just this past year in 2022, the Lantos Foundation gave our highest human rights prize to Ennis Cantor Freedom, the NBA basketball star who dared to stand up to China. He wore um, sneakers that um, called for, you know, freedom for Tibet, stopping the Uyghur genocide. Uh, he was almost immediately pulled off the court. China immediately stopped streaming games from his team, the Boston Celtics. And instead of the NBA, which is a pretty powerful organization in its own right, standing by their guy and saying, you know, we let other athletes put social justice messages on their jerseys or on their shoes, and this is his right um, under our system to, to express his views. They basically hung him out to dry, basically fired him, kicked him out of the NBA, and shame on them, shame on them, all over their fear about whether or not they would be streamed in China. And you know what? The Chinese people really like basketball. And if the NBA had stood up and had shown some backbone and had shown some integrity and some values, some moral values, eventually I think China would have buckled. Because if they had said, our athletes, they have that right. They have that right. Or they could have said, none of them do. We are not going to permit anybody to have any message. But that's not what they did. And uh, so, you know, it's an example of, of um, you know, corporate cowardice and lack of, lack of conviction and lack of courage. And uh, they're not actually being asked to put much on the line. Maybe a little bit of income, maybe a little bit of awkwardness for a while. But uh, we, we need to expect more of them, call them to be better. Katrina, as we finish up, I have to mention this because there is this idea, I think, in the U.S., aside from people that were just pure opportunists, there was this idea in the U.S. that it, by engaging with the China, and frankly the Chinese Communist Party, we would change China, it would make China more democratic, right? We're talking about these censorship regimes and how powerful they are in China. 
you know, with the revelations of these Twitter files recently, and frankly, a bunch of interviews I've been doing recently trying to understand, you know, the implications of all this, it's really almost like China has really changed us in the wrong direction. And this has profound implications because you, you talked about, you know, here we have the freedom to still know the left and the right, but, but what we've learned recently is actually in some cases we didn't and we didn't even know. You know, I'm going to tie it back as we're finishing up to religious freedom because this has profound implications on religious freedom even here, right? Um, I guess what, 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 what lesson can we take? What do we, what do we need to do as a, as a society? Well, I think we need to, once again, trust one another. You know, the, the Twitter files, it's, it's a big story. It, it shouldn't be ignored. I have a lot of friends. I'm a Democrat, lifelong Democrat, as, with, as was my dad. Um, and we, we believe very much in freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of expression. And all of us, left and right, need to be concerned about the fact that Entities like Twitter and Facebook were making themselves gatekeepers, were somehow seeking to protect or prevent the American people from full access to information that we need and have a right to have access to. So I, th I think it's, it's a mistake when people sort of on the center and left side of the aisle shrug their shoulders and dismiss this as not that big of a story. It is a big story. It is a reflection of a, a lack of trust in our system, which is based on this robust free market of ideas. We all jump into that public square together. We, we argue, we debate, we share information, and we let and hope that the best ideas and the best solutions will emerge. So I'm, I'm still an optimist. I mean, I don't think China has changed us that much, but I think it's good that some of this news is coming out, some of these revelations. I think we are seeing reforms taking place. Uh, I think, you know, we, we do need to, to hold our journalists um, to their own high standards of journalism. We do not want them to be ide ideologues. We don't want them to be gatekeepers. We want them to report the news fearlessly and without favor. Um, and, uh, and so I, I hope that we can get back to a kind of journalism that trusts the reader and the viewer and the listener to make their own conclusions um, and certainly doesn't run interference uh, for either, um, either political party or either point of view on an issue. Democracy really does depend on a free and independent press that is trusted. And trust has to be earned. A little bit of that has been lost. I know there's polling out there that shows that trust in the media is at all-time lows. And, you know, some of our most well-known um, media organizations, they do need to take a look in the mirror. We all need to look in the mirror sometimes and say, okay, you know, re, you know um, truth check, gut check. But some of them need to do that and get back to, to doing what they have historically done so well, which is report the news. And just as the kind of final moment here, because I know I have to let you go, um, how this freedom of this marketplace of speech that you're describing, which I so resonates with everything I believe in, 
How important is that for religious freedom and freedom of conscience? So important, so vitally important. What makes America's sort of faith community so strong is that it is so diverse and that for the most part we are respectful towards those whose deeply held beliefs may differ from our own. You know, I think it was Voltaire who said something very interesting about um, religion in the public square. And I hope I get this more or less right. He said, when you have only one religion, you have dictatorship. When you have two, you have civil war. But when you have many, then freedom can flow. And I think that's a really important insight that um, you know our founders were brilliant and so far ahead of their time in their First Amendment protection, um, saying on the one hand, there shall be no establishment of religion, so no official religion in the United States, and on the other hand, that there shall be free exercise of religion. That's kind of the secret sauce. No official state religion, no official government um, either, you know, benediction on a particular faith or trying to restrain a faith, but by the same token, this multiplicity of faith communities should be able to freely exercise their faith. It's a brilliant formulation. I think it's been part of our secret sauce here in America, and I hope we can hold on to it. Well, Katrina Lantos-Sweat, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be on, and, and thank you for such thoughtful and wonderful questions. Thank you all for joining Katrina Lantos-Sweat and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.